This is Tracing the Roots of the Climate Crisis. Chapter 4. Dreams. There's this line in a Nina Simone song that's been running through my head quite a bit these days. The song, at least in part, is about drugs and addiction. She says, The dealer takes a nickel, Lord, and sells you lots of sweet dreams. And Lord knows we need lots of sweet dreams. This line hits me, I think, because of its empathy. We do need sweet dreams, God knows. But not all dreams are equal. Some dreams, to borrow another line from the song, put tombstones in our eyes. I'm Ben Cushing. Welcome to the fourth and final chapter of Tracing the Roots of the Climate Crisis. In this chapter, I want to reflect on our dreams. What kinds of dreams have we inherited? What are their consequences? And what kinds of dreams do we need in order to survive the future and heal? Let's start by thinking a bit about the dreams that have built, or at least legitimized, major parts of the world as we know it. Take, for example, the very seductive and reassuring dream of progress. A product of the European Enlightenment, progress tells a story that claims to explain all of the human past, present, and future. It's a triumphant story. Humans, it tells, are forever developing new and better technologies and forms of social organization. In the dream of progress, the future is bright and civilized, and the past is mostly dark, backward, and irrelevant. As Theodore Shanin describes the progress story, quote, All societies are advancing naturally and consistently up, on a route from poverty, barbarism, despotism, and ignorance, to riches, civilization, democracy, and rationality. As listeners of the last chapter might notice, the narrative of progress relies on the civilized-savage dichotomy that's so central to the ideologies that have justified settler colonialism and racial capitalism. In fact, the story of progress was and is exceedingly useful to power holders. It can justify everything from enslaving and commodifying people, read Progress Through the Civilizing Mission, to seizing native land by force, read Progress Through Taming and Harnessing the Wilderness, to global imperialism, read Progress Through the White Man's Burden. The story of progress even provided the moral foundation for the neocolonialism that took hold after World War II. So, for example, when the former colonial powers use institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank to impose their economic policies on their former colonies, they framed it as development, a kind of economic, technological, and political progress. Poor countries, we're told, aren't poor because of centuries of violence and extraction. And rich countries aren't rich because of their exploitation of poor countries, because of centuries of stolen riches. Rather, some countries are just more developed than others. And it's out of benevolence and goodwill that the developed countries teach the poor countries how to develop. So it shouldn't be any surprise that today we still use the language of childhood and adulthood to explain global inequality. Some economies are mature, we're told, and others are developing. Today, we live in the world that progress made. And as we face the existential threats that progress brought about, from the climate crisis to nuclear war, techno-capitalists dream about escaping the world 
and colonizing Mars. Jeff Bezos dons his white cowboy hat and mounts his white phallic steed. It's absurd. Progress is such a powerful story that many of us are convinced that the only solution to the crises caused by yesterday's progress is to just double down. I'm reminded of something that the anthropologist Arturo Escobar wrote. Quote, There are no modern solutions to our modern problems. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not advocating that we go backward or return to some romantic past. And neither is Escobar. Even that criticism rests on the framework of the progress story. Rather, I'm suggesting that we jettison the whole idea. Stick it on one of Bezos' rockets and fire it into the heavens. It isn't that there are no solutions to our modern problems. It's that solutions will have to come from other frameworks. Progress is a dream, all right. And God knows we need sweet dreams. But maybe not this one. This one's put too many tombstones into too many eyes. The American dream is one of the most salient stories in U.S. society over the past century. This is a deeply held and deeply felt belief not only about American freedom of opportunity, but about what constitutes a good life and how one should go about living it. To criticize the American dream is to commit a kind of blasphemy in U.S. culture. And while I'm more than happy to attack false idols, I also want to acknowledge that the American dream can be a source of hope for a lot of people. And hope is precious in this world. Many Americans assume that the American dream, the dream of lifting oneself from rags to riches through hard work and perseverance, is as old as the country itself, or older. Many of us were taught that the so-called pilgrims came on the Mayflower seeking religious liberty, framed as the first chapter in a national tale of American dreams. We're invited to imagine European immigrants arriving at Ellis Island seeking freedom and opportunity, and we're asked to play the protagonist in our own American dream story. But like most national myths, it's never been very true, and it isn't even especially old. It dates back to the late 19th century, when the American economy was rapidly industrializing and the wars of colonial settlement were coming to a close. That was indeed a time when a minority of the population, namely white men, did enjoy significantly better economic opportunity and upward class mobility compared to their counterparts in Western Europe. Western Europe at the time had a rigid class structure with roots in the feudal system, and the U.S. offered, among other things, freshly seized indigenous and Mexican land for white settlement and booming new industries. But the time of relative opportunity, as unjust as it was, has long passed. For about the last half century, in the context of neoliberal economics and the consolidation of corporate power, the U.S. has offered less and less opportunity. Today, Canadians experience three times higher rates of class mobility than Americans. So if the U.S. was ever a land of opportunity, it was in the context of colonial settlement and capitalist exploitation. And it isn't much of one today. So the hope offered by the American dream is, at least in part, false. But there's something even more dangerous about the American dream. Embedded in the notion that the U.S. is a land of opportunity 
is a belief that inequality is simply the result of some people taking advantage of those opportunities and others failing to. This is often called the myth of meritocracy, the idea that people earn their place in the economic hierarchy based on their merit, their skills, and work ethic. This is a remarkably powerful ideology, since it implies that people basically deserve their lots in life. The rich are rich because they earned their wealth, and the poor are poor because they deserve to be. All coercion is hidden away and justified. The myth of meritocracy makes no room for an accounting of colonialism, slavery, class exploitation, gendered power structures, or extractive imperial economies. So, for example, if we believe the myth of meritocracy, and then we look around and see that white folks have on average 20 times more wealth than black folks, which they do, the story slips quickly into white supremacy. One's left with the idea that white folks must be 20 times harder working than their black counterparts. It's no wonder that this story is so popular among the same political forces that seek to repress black and brown movements for liberation. Overall, this national myth can cause us to blame ourselves for suffering the consequences of systems that are hurting us, while letting those systems off the hook. It keeps us from understanding the world that we inhabit, and from understanding our own lives and the lives of the people around us. And, I'd suggest, it even keeps us from dreaming better dreams. Not all dreams are equal. Some dreams, even dreams that give us hope, can hurt us. They can even be weapons deployed against us, and weapons that we deploy against one another. As the social theorist Slavoj Žižek put it, quote, The first step is not to change reality to fit your dreams, but to change the way you dream. Or better, from James Baldwin, quote, It's only when one is able, without bitterness or self-pity, to surrender a dream one has long cherished, or a privilege one has long possessed, that one is set free, that one has set oneself free for higher dreams, for greater privileges. I don't know what dreams we need, but when I look at progress and the American dream, I feel pretty confident that these aren't them. It seems to me that we're all living within a kind of crisis of the imagination. Over the past several decades, the competing dreams of modernity have collapsed. The dreams of the old left were declared dead in the 1980s, as neoliberal capitalism claimed total victory over communism. Then, the conservative icon Margaret Thatcher, former prime minister of the UK, celebrated the total hegemony of her class by declaring, quote, there is no alternative, end quote, to global free market capitalism. But today, after enduring 40 years of austerity and growing inequality, and as we witness the unraveling of the living systems of this world of which we are part, the dreams of capitalism are surely dead. Some may still hold them close, but more out of nostalgia than actual hope. Those old dreams have lost their power. And where they still hold sway, they take the shape of reactionary nationalism and misdirected resentment. The modern dreamscape is as clear-cut and barren as the modern landscape.
these hard times, what stories do we need to be able to make sense of and give meaning to our lives? What stories will help us survive the future and heal? Let's go back to Arturo Escobar's suggestion that there are no modern solutions to our modern problems. By this, he means that the solutions to our problems will have to come from outside the framework of modernity and capitalist Eurocentric culture. And he directs our attention particularly to indigenous peoples and radical social movements. Indigenous communities, as the historian and native activist Nick Estes argues, not only have centuries of experience resisting colonialism, but also hold practical knowledge about how to live within reciprocal ecological relationships connected to local places. So indigenous-led social movements, such as the movement to stop the construction of oil pipelines, aren't just about stopping pipelines and protecting the environment. They're also assertions of alternative ways of relating to other people and the other-than-human world of being responsible in our relationships with our various relatives. Estes makes this point partly by exploring the Lakota phrase that became a rallying cry at the movement for Standing Rock, Miniwachoni, which means water is life. Quote, Miniwachoni and these indigenous ways of relating to human and other than human life exist in opposition to capitalism, which transforms both humans and non-humans into labor and commodities to be bought and sold. These ways of relating also exist in opposition to capitalism's twin, settler colonialism, which calls for the annihilation of indigenous people and their other-than-human kin. End quote. Within indigenous-led resistance, we can see concretely that other worlds are indeed possible. They've been here all along, resisting. Radical social movements can also offer living alternatives to the status quo, not only do these movements call for an end to various oppressive systems, they often embody examples of what alternative systems might look like. So Occupy Wall Street didn't just call for the end of the rule of the 1%. It actually embodied a radically democratic alternative based on mutual aid and direct participatory democracy in daily general assemblies. And it invited people into a different way of understanding themselves and others. In a similar way, the Black Lives Matter movement didn't just call for an end to police violence, but also built networks of local community members and organizations engaged in everything from mutual aid to collective strategy, the kinds of community ties needed within a society free of the carceral state. None of these examples are perfect, and none of them offer simple blueprints for a better world. But still, these are the tangible spaces where people are actively trying to figure out how to build a better society together. They are spaces of agency and creativity, where transformative dreams are being nurtured and built. But radical alternatives can even show up in the most mundane places. The anthropologist and anarchist David Graeber points out that mutual aid and cooperative relationships are actually all over the place. Consider, for example, how radically utopian your local library is. It's this institution for resource sharing and community, and it's free. In my old neighborhood, we had a volunteer-run tool library. I'd go there every couple of weeks and borrow a lawnmower for free. Then I'd bring it back and one of my neighbors would take it the next week. You could borrow everything from a screwdriver to a jackhammer. It was dreamy. A shabby beacon of a revolutionary alternative 
housed in the basement of a local church. It was like Home Depot's worst nightmare. One of the most hopeful books that I've read in the past few years is called A Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solnit. Solnit finds that radically solidaristic and caring communities emerge within the most unexpected places. She takes a hard look at the history and the sociological study of disasters. What she finds, I think, is deeply moving and a bit of a solve in these scary times. For one thing, she finds that this culture fundamentally misunderstands the way people behave in times of crisis. We're encouraged, by Hollywood for example, to imagine that when crises hit, people revert to a kind of brutal instinct. We panic, hoard resources, and get violent fast. But it turns out we usually don't. In fact, the actual history of crisis tells a very different story. People often spontaneously begin looking out for each other, for strangers, rescuing folks in crisis and sharing what they have. And it happens over and over again in history. It's the norm. Let's just sit with that. The implications are enormous. Maybe we're not all cruel brutes overlaid by a thin veneer of civilization. Maybe that's another story we can leave behind. What's more, Solnit shows that people often think back on these moments of crisis, paradoxically, as some of the deepest and strangely best memories of their lives. It isn't that the crisis was good. People often suffered devastating losses amid these crises. It was the unexpected richness of community and mutual aid that people experienced during and just after the crisis. Solnit argues that we always need this deeper sense of community and purpose, but that this society just doesn't provide it. It's only in extraordinary moments when the alienation of daily life within this society is ruptured that we experience it, or rather, that we seem to spontaneously co-create it. You and I are living in a moment of multiple, unprecedented crises. Things seem to be unraveling all around us. Ecological systems are coming apart and transforming. The legitimacy of our economic and political systems is crumbling. And the dreams of modernity appear to be dead. May they rest in peace and never reemerge from the grave. And at the same time, multiple transformative dreams seem to also be taking root and flourishing sometimes within people's struggles against this system, and sometimes in the wake of the disasters that it rains down upon us. In this moment, which is as unstable as it is creative, maybe our goal shouldn't be to find the right dream as a noun, but to cultivate our capacity to dream as a verb. As we attempt to trace the roots of the climate crisis, we find that they run deep. They're entangled within the core beliefs and institutions of this entire civilization. That means that only the deepest transformations are likely to get us out of this mess. I guess that's the bad news. And it's also the good news. Nobody can tell us where all this is headed. The future is unknowable. As Rebecca Solnit put it, Quote, the future is dark, 
with a darkness as much of the womb as of the grave. A couple years ago, I was on a walk at the Sandy River Delta, at the mouth of the Columbia Gorge, with a good friend, the scholar of social movements and teacher David Osborne. He posed a question that's really stuck with me. It's been bouncing around in my head ever since. He asked, quote, If the changing climate was a gift, what would it offer us? That's a question that we'll need to answer together. It's a question to live into. But here's one starting point for an answer, from my perspective at least. What if the climate crisis were an outstretched hand? A kind of invitation to change, calling us toward one another and toward our other-than-human relatives. What if the changing climate were a call to come home, back home to a world in which we belong, of which we are participants, responsible members of a living community? At this point, there's no longer any doubt that the climate crisis is a door to another world. The question is, to what world will it lead? What worlds will we build together? Thanks for listening to Tracing the Roots of the Climate Crisis. I'm Ben Cushing. If you found this podcast to be valuable, please consider sharing it with a friend. Tracing the Roots of the Climate Crisis, including theme music, was written and performed by me, Ben Cushing. Special thanks to Mike McNaughton for support with sound engineering and David Osborne for his insightful feedback. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.